I'm going to be better without that. What do you think? Because I have to, because they're gonna, you're always going to do something because something else is going to happen. <laughs> Never what you want to do. Is that all right? Okay. It's such a, a truly joyous and wonderful occasion for me to be here tonight that I hope you're going to join with me in it. Uh, the greatest AA experience of my life took place in Sacramento when I came up here five years ago to speak for a meeting that you had and for the first time for the very first time I really knew and saw what Alcoholics Anonymous is I don't know whether I'm an officially a member of Al-Anon or not I certainly qualify I'm sure I have a daughter who is a member of AA and has been for going on 12 years but I came to you tonight with what seems to me a very special message and while it's personal a great deal of your work is personal work and I think it might be of help not only to the Al-Anon group but to the members of Alcoholics Anonymous themselves I always wonder, as I stand and look at you, if you know what you've got. I wonder if you're one-tenth as flamingly, excitingly, adventurously grateful as you ought to be. I wonder if you remember what used to happen to the vast, thousands of people that have been in AA since before there was any such thing as AA and I wonder if you are aware that nowhere in this staggering confused difficult unhappy world of today is there one single group that can come anywhere near you in your power, your potential for good, and your true leadership. Every time I come into an AA room, I think if they were aware of this, the building would take off. It couldn't have possibly just sit here like this. We couldn't stay in our chairs if, if you were suddenly uh, illumined by the fact that here together in this room are people who have seen. You know, let me go back and around that just a little bit. Uh, everybody in the world today that I know, and I've been in the last eight months, I have been in 38 major cities in the United States, I have spoken over every kind of TV and radio and in all kinds of meetings and all the things that you can do to get to know the people. And I tell you that the thing that they want 
that they long for, that they're hungry for. And it's the most amazing thing where you find it. The places that you just wouldn't have any idea. Uh, you go into a restaurant like Stan Musial's place in St. Louis. Or you're on a train or a plane or in some uh, group of young college students in a, in a school of journalism, a graduate school of journalism. And you get any one or two of those people together aside, and what they are hungry for is some knowledge of a higher power. I sat with a group in Chicago not very long ago, a lot of, I thought, extraordinarily dull industrial leaders. And I was absolutely amazed halfway through the meeting Somebody brought up the subject of angels. Well, I wouldn't have thought there was a man in the room that ever heard of angels or cared about them or would know one if he met him. And if, you know, anything about it. We were there for four solid hours. And they told nothing but the stories of the angels of Mons. The stories out of the Bible about Jacob and the angel. They were just, they're hungry for a higher power. As my youngest son sometimes says, Mama, is there any way in the world to get into AA without becoming a drunk? <laughs> they want what you've got. And they want it very desperately. And actually, as I'm sure you all know, I go to a number of meetings when I spend the winter in New York I go to a number of meetings of AA there, none of whom have the alcohol problem. They have problems. They have all kinds of problems. They have greed. They have uh, appetite for food. They have sex problems, domestic problems, human relation problems. And they get together and work on the 12 steps. And they try to live from them as much as they know how, to overcome whatever it is that is separating them from the knowledge of a higher power. Their lives have become unmanageable because they can't behave themselves about something. You know, of course, that there's a growing group that uses the 12 steps for gambling. This is a fine place just over the line to mention that, but nevertheless it's true. And... They, it is growing. All of these things are growing. Uh, why it always seems so wonderful to me, I cannot tell you what the 12 steps mean in my life. I wear out one set after another. I have it pasted on the top of my suitcase. I have it in my wallet. I have it everywhere I go. I cannot, there are just certain things that you can't live without. And while we've gone a long way from some of the great teachings, the teaching that AA has on this paper is the single greatest spiritual message that has come to the people in this country in our time. Now, don't you ever forget that. Don't ever let your sights get little on it. Don't let them come down to stop at your own sobriety. Well, that's a fine thing. Gosh knows, nobody was more grateful than I was. 
says, if you really want to see what, where you need AA, have yourself a very beautiful teenage daughter who's an alcoholic. I don't think anybody has a tougher one to deal with than that particular one. So I'm, I'm not belittling the results of sobriety. But when you sit here, all of you, the hundreds of you that are here, the thousands of you all over this country, and realize that you are the people who know what answered prayer is. You, any, I, do you say morning and night, thank you, higher power? Do you mind if I say God? I mean, it's a, let's use it as a code word for the higher power, you know? Because that's what we're really talking about. But that, that you have, above all things, you can say, thank you, God. I know you answer prayer. I have seen you answer prayer. I have been there when it happened. Don't you know that this is the greatest thing that can happen to human beings today? There isn't anything else in the world that can compare to a positive, all-the-way-out knowledge that God answers prayer. It just isn't. I go to church meetings. I go to meetings of religious groups of various kinds. When I'm in New York, I go to the Catholic Church a good deal because I like the way it smells so much better than the Protestant one. <laughs> and, well, it does. And, but it doesn't matter. What, you know, the folks of the wheel are go to the same center and they come out to the same thing around. But the, you, all you see there is these faces, uplifted faces, saying... I need to know. I need to have... We're going around a fast curve. I have to reach for something to hang on to. I wish I knew. And you people know. You can't stop with your own sobriety. You have got to live the 12 steps, as it says here. And you, you think of it every time. Having a spiritual awake having had a spiritual awakening is the result of these steps we tried to carry this message to others to others it doesn't matter and to practice these principles in all our affairs i beg you to believe that if you follow that 12th step that the whole face of this world will be changed not just your part of it the whole world can be changed if you literally and honestly and practically. Don't you see that we were told to pray without ceasing? Well, everybody knows you cannot pray without ceasing. You have too many other things to do. You have to cook and get the kids off to school and go to work and iron and go to the pray bridge and go see a movie and listen to television and meet with your friends and how can you pray without ceasing only one way in the world by having taken these 12 steps first of all into your mind into your consciousness 
into your acceptance. You can't give God anything but your attention. And you've been hit in the head with a plank like the mule by the alcohol, and you, the, the God finally got your attention. <laughs> so now you have here in front of you these, this great thing, and once it is in your consciousness, there has been a moment, and I can see in this room faces that I know, because I recognize this. I see here faces, and many of them, who have come to the moment when the 12 steps is part of their heart. There is that moment when it comes down from your mind and your consciousness and becomes part of your heart and soul and bloodstream. And then you are praying without ceasing. Whether you ever stop to do it during the day when you're busy or not, you are praying without ceasing because you are living by the 12 steps. And I say to you that in my opinion, and about this it isn't so darn humble at that, I have, don't know of anything myself since the Sermon on the Mount that means to the spiritually hungry person what the 12 steps can and should mean. And if you are like uh, most of us, uh, living with an alcoholic would rile the temper of most of the saints I've read about, many of whom had quite quick tempers. And I think that the 12 steps for the person who has to live with an alcoholic, or even with him while he is making it on AA in the beginning, uh, or even maybe afterwards for a while, when he wishes he wasn't, uh, <laughs> the, there is nothing that is nobody that needs AA more, the 12 steps. I know AA has a lot of other things. I am not an AA. I am an alcoholic, but I'm not an AA. I got my healing through prayer work in a spiritual church. But the problem I did have, my doctor used to say that he didn't think I was an alcoholic. He just thought that my father was an alcoholic, and I had to prove that everything he did was all right, so I went out and tried to become one, too. But I don't believe that's true. Anyway, I stopped drinking 21 years ago, and I thank God for that. So do all my family, friends, and in my business associates and everybody who ever knew me. But the, the whole thing is that when you come into this business, you have to be, if you are truthful and honorable and have integrity and live by the 12 steps. I have been thinking lately that the next step is awfully important to all of us. The next step. Everybody has a next step to take all the time. I was told not very long ago by a very great newspaper man who I think perhaps knows as much about what's going on in this country as anybody can, and he said, our enemies today are apathy and inertia. They're not the, the vice thing, you know, all this stuff about goats and hens and hen yards and barnyards and stuff that they write and call novels. Uh, by the way, have you ever tried that? Take one of these novels uh, that have come out that... Uh, 
you know, they're kind of messy. Garbage sale type of novels. And you can replace them with animals and you don't know the difference. There don't have to be any human beings in them at all. Everything that's done in them can be done by any barnyard fowl. And so you really don't have to, to uh, you know. But if you come into a... It is not... It's a device swim around because we are in the midst sometimes of apathy and inertia. And I have found one way to get out of that is that next step. Now, you've got the 12 steps here. And you take them one by one until they become part of yourself. I remember once a man coming to me and saying, asking me if there was any way that I could get his wife into AA. And he had a great deal of money, and he wanted to get all the AA nurses and doctors and leaders and people, and he'd take a hospital and one thing and another. And I said, all of that you can do if you want to, but she has to take the first step. <laughs> and he didn't quite understand this. I don't think he was quite annoyed about the whole thing. But you take the first step, and then one by one you take the others. But I started not very long ago when something broke apart under my feet that I thought was a rock, and it turned out it wasn't. And I began all over on the 12 steps, and I took each one of them again, one at a time. And every day I had a next step to take, and to take it actively, and actively with the people around me, and actively with the people in my business. And at that time, I was a good deal in the TV business. And I'm telling you that you, you probably all have 24 steps. <laughs> and at least you can make these 24 if you just keep on going back and going over them. But you will always find the next step. And that brought me to the thing I especially wanted to, the reason I was so grateful when I was asked to come here tonight and so honestly full of, my joy in being with you and my hope that the risen Christ would be with us all so that we would have something that we could, or whatever you call the risen Christ, it doesn't matter again, uh, uh, that we could understand something of the power of this thing. Peace has power, you see. And we sit around thinking nothing but war has power. Maybe we can stave it off, but we don't have that sense of power that you ought to have. You, nobody but you, nobody but you knows what an answer to prayer your sobriety or the sobriety of the person you loved is. Nobody, nobody but somebody who's tried every other way in the world to stop drinking. Every doctor, every church, every, I remember, have seen wives hold out their hands and say, in this hand, as me and your children and your job and your home and your mother's old age and everything else, and over here's a bottle of whiskey, which are you going to take? And knew the answer before she asked him. Knew he was going to take this. Is there any greater spiritual healing or power than the one that finally brings about this great result? Well, if it can do that in your case, it can do it for the whole world if we begin to work on the 12 steps in a world prayer. If we put peace, our lives have become unmanageable. 
because of war and its threats. And we have admitted that we need a higher power to help us. You've got everything. Herbert Hoover said to us one day, some months ago, I was amazed, you may already know this, I didn't, uh, Mr. Hoover is still considered the greatest living functioning engineer. And no great engineering project ever goes ahead now anywhere except behind the Iron Curtain without it is taken first to Herbert Hoover. This surprised me very much. And I was amazed when he said that there had only been four great teachers in the whole world and that all of them were in the spiritual world, that there had never been great teachers. Somebody said to him, why are you still going on with this? You're 190, and you should not be working this hard, and why do you keep on with it? And he said, because there have never been any great teachers in our field. And then he said, there have only been four great teachers in the world, and they were all in the spiritual field, and he named Jesus Christ, Plato, Lao Tse, and Buddha. So, you see, it doesn't matter which one it is. But the teaching that you have here is so great a thing that it could lead into, if it can lead most of us, some of the people that I have known, into sobriety. You are miracle workers. No, this is true. And that was why, when I wrote this book, which has turned out, I'm very grateful to say, to be one that people have loved and that the lawyers look up to and respect, and that the people who remember these early days, the lost the classes at the big universities are teaching from some of the cases that I have outlined in my father's life. But to me, the final verdict was the verdict on alcohol. This, to me, is the story of one of the great men, two of the great men of our time, my father, Earl Rogers, and my godfather, Jack London, both of whom lost the fight to alcohol, both of whom died, my father at 50, my godfather at 46, the greatest living American novelist as he was then, and he was, and right today, the only place in the world where you can't buy a full set of Jack London as one of the great men is in America. You can buy it in Russia or Italy or Spain or England or France or almost uh, Japan, any place, but we haven't quite caught up with him here yet. And we're going to, though. There are sets on the way. They're going to be. But here was a man who died at 46 of alcohol, nothing else. And my father, when the head of the American Bar Association told me publicly the other night, was the greatest, he thought, advocate the American bar had ever produced, who died at 50 of alcohol. This is the story of an alcoholic and of the fight I lost. And then I look at you people, 
and think that if I'd have known the 12 steps, I might have saved both of them. If these 12 steps had existed, I am sure that they would have responded, that they would have understood this message and the presence of the power of God, the higher power that is within it, because this is not something you do. This is not something that you put together like a cut puzzle. This is the presence of the higher power that works and operates, and you know that it is. And that's why, ever since I wrote, you see, my the final verdict I was looking for, when I was 18, I signed commitment pay. I can speak more frankly here than I do anywhere else in public because you will understand me. When I was 18, I signed commitment papers for my father. I signed commitment papers to have him restrained for his own good when he was regarded as the greatest lawyer in the West. But more and more he had begun to miss his cases, and more and more he didn't show up in court, and more and more we got into a panic about his enemies and disbarment and all these things. So I signed the commitment papers. And I went into the courtroom, and in what Hugh Bailey, who was for many years was the head of United Press, one of the great newspaper men, says in his book, the greatest cross-examination that Earl Rogers ever did in a courtroom was the cross-examination of his daughter. Because when he got me on the witness stand, he said to me, Nora, you don't think I'm crazy, do you? And I said, no. No, Pop, I don't. And he said, do you want to go through with this nonsense? And I said, no. And it haunted me for 50 years as to whether I'd done right or wrong, whether if I'd had the guts to go through with it, whether I've, if I had said, yes, I do want to go through with it, Yes, I do, but it wouldn't have done any good. You know that. You've done it, probably, some of you. What good did it do? They come out, yes, sober, filled with bitterness and resentment and with nothing to replace the adventure and excitement of alcohol. No God, no spiritual power, no truth, no 12 steps to go by. They just have been committed for a while. And I have never yet, I don't know about you, but I have never yet seen anyone healed solely by the method of commitment. But I tried it. And so for 50 years, night and morning, I kept asking myself, if I had had the guts to go through with it, could I have saved him? So as I battled my way through it and watched my daughter and saw the other people that I know, the great, great people in this country who've been saved by this way of thinking, by these 12 steps. I began to think, no, I couldn't have. But I wish Bill Wilson had been born a hundred years sooner. I wish I'd have known about the 12 steps when I was 18. Then I would have had something to offer these two great men that were often in my in my charge, because you all know that as Eleanor Roosevelt said not very long ago in one of her last talks, there is a feeling between fathers and daughters. She said, my husband was closer to his daughter Anna than to anyone else in the world. 
and they had a more sympathetic understanding of each other. So that I think with both these men as their daughter, goddaughter, I had that. But I didn't have anything to offer them. What could I say? I didn't have this inspired message. Not by any means. So I wanted, if I may, to, to tell you a couple of quick things out of the book that I think may be of help to you and to the other alcoholics and Al-Anons that you know. Uh... First of all, the first time, as far as I know, that the word alcoholic insanity, alcoholism, dipsomania, as they called it then, were ever used in an American courtroom as a disease as a mental difficulty that needed prayerful help of every kind were used by my father way, way back in the early 20th century when he defended Colonel Griffith. You know Griffith Park down in Los Angeles? Well, Colonel Griffith, after my father got him freed of a attempted murder charge which he had done while he was drunk, uh, gave Griffith Park to the city and did a great deal of other very great work having in this instance been saved by it but he brought this into court and posed it as a hypothetical question and said this comes under the heading of disease and of a spiritual breakdown that needs help and it had never before, and this is a matter of record, it had never before, as far as I know, never been brought forward in that light, and I have researched everything I could get my hands on. So I think that there began, at least so doctors tell me and, and many people who know about this, there began one of the lights that began to break through the awful darkness that had surrounded this thing that has now become the great light that can be the great light that leads so many now in the book too I have quoted Jack London's definition of John Barleycorn and I believe today and I think it might sometimes help uh to understand if we could again read the John Barleycorn book, but he talked it to us many, many years before he wrote the book. He used to call alcohol the noseless one. Such an awful description. The noseless one, and I think it was. But I think the thing above all others that I worked out here in the book from something my father once said to me and this I give you because I have known it now to benefit a great many people, and I thought you might like it as, a, as an illustration. I don't know whether you feel this, but I find that in all spiritual work, especially among the kind of people that it is particularly important that we get into spiritual work, that one of the things nobody ever, 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 ever mentions is the word boredom. I don't know why we refuse to admit 
that you can get just as tired of reading the New Testament as you can anything else, and you can get just as tired of the 12 steps from time to time as you can of anything else. Boredom is inherent in the human soul. And I think sometimes new ways of approach and new ways of thought and seeing the great adventurous side of this, this is not just a flat sort of thing, but my father believed definitely that Robert Louis Stevenson meant the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to be the story of an alcoholic. He believed completely, because RLS, as the people who loved him, called him, had an alcohol problem, as you undoubtedly know. And my father believed that the drink which Dr. Jekyll, this respectable and respected member of the medical profession in the stage city of London, took and invented and drank down and turned into Mr. Hyde, who could trample the brains out of a child. He believed that drink was just alcohol and that this was a story that a, a, an illustration, a parable, a thing like Pilgrim's Progress that Stevenson was trying to make us see the transformation that could happen and the warnings that were in it. And so one time, this is something that I had written down during the last days when without God, without spiritual help, without a higher power, I didn't know which way to turn. And you can, uh, you can really take the whole book of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and insert it and I think get a great and powerful help for yourself because it shows you that the Hyde part of you, which is the alcoholic that tries and strives to take advantage of you and of anybody you know, can be overcome and that it isn't something you know the Pope said one of the great things in the world the other day I hope you all noticed it when in one of his last uh, messages to the world he said it is time that the world awakens to know that its battle is against the error and not against the person who errs and I think that's one of the great things of AA. You do know that the battle is against alcohol and not against the alcoholic. And nobody but you knows that. You see, that's where you have the great advantage. Nobody else but you knows that. And that's why you are people of compassion, which is power, and of all the love. And without love, you can't get anywhere. And the only way you can love is to fight the error and not the person who errs. And so I wrote this down, and I read it very briefly. This is where, at the end, Dr. Jekyll tries to get back. This isn't any use my reading that. You all know it. <laughs> Perfect, absolute nonsense for me to stand here and repeat what every person in this room, including me, knows. And that is that moment that comes when you try to get back to Dr. Jekyll and you can't. You are now Mr. Hyde for good. 
you now can't control it any longer. And you will take everything you can and nothing, nothing in the world but the higher power can come in and get rid of Mr. Hyde for good and take you back to Dr. Jekyll. It's a joy, it's a privilege, it's everything in this world that I can think of that's good for me to be here together with you in this room. I feel always so comforted. I feel so reassured. I was in Alabama not very long ago, and sometimes your stomach just sinks when you see the hatreds that are loose between people and the things that are happening in the world. And then when you come together in a room like this that is filled with answered prayer, that is uplifted with miracles, and when you know that there are this many people, it only took ten men who knew this truth to save the city. And there are a great many more than ten of us here tonight. I thank you very much for your friendship in letting me come to be with you. <laughs>